So so here's what happened. Let me tell you. Let me tell you this before we yeah, keep going. I, I got to catch up with you for real. I woke up in the middle of the night and I could not get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I'm up at three in the morning mm-hmm. looking at my phone. It hits five o'clock. I finally go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I got enough time to do a little of this, do a little of that before we do this recording at nine thirty. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, next time I look up and look at my phone, it's a nine twenty seven. That's it, baby. That's how that shit fly. That's how it fly. <laughs> This is the Black Journalist on Journalism podcast, a ZMC podcast production. Donnell, we got we 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 must catch up, obviously, because it's been some time. Let's just let's start from what have you been up to? And I'll give you a sense of what I've been up to and why this podcast has been. I don't know, on hiatus, whatever you want to call it. It's something that we both wanted to come back to, but it's also sure. like uh, it's it's one of those things where it's just like life is busy, work is busy, all the things are busy, and we got to make sure that you know we 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 want to come back to this. So, t- so tell me what you've been up to in the last three months. Well, I mean, running the paper, the Atlanta Voice, the only black newspaper that's printing in Atlanta, is quite the responsibility. I got the job last year. But still, I felt like this this new year and the towards the end of last year just got so busy chasing down all these stories. I mean, I'm literally sitting outside of the Fulton County Jail with the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you name it, waiting for Trump's motorcade to come in. You know what I mean? Like it's one of yeah. those years. And it's, just, it's and it still hasn't stopped because now they're trying to, well, the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, is in, is in the news so I had a story go. I wouldn't call viral because I hate I hate the term viral, but it really did well enough to where I'm on radio in Chicago, like talking about it. And again, it's just like this Trump wave doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. And he's got to come. He's got to campaign in Georgia if he thinks he's going to win this thing. So more than likely, I'll probably be a part of a big media contingent again sometime this spring when he's like campaigning in in Augusta or Sandy Springs somewhere where there's a large white voter block. So. It's been nuts. It's been nuts, but um, I think we need this podcast. We meaning all of us, but definitely black journalists, just to have a, a safe space to go sometimes and to kind of hear about each other because we, we there still hasn't been anything else like what we had since the three months that we've been gone. Yeah, yeah, and in the the case specifically that you're covering, the Fannie Willis case, um, the that she's brought this this racketeering charges against Trump again and other sort of associates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of which is, you know, I mean, front of mind, front of center in 2024 because of the election and short because of the impacts on democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then of course, because of the district attorney herself who now is sort of, you know, has this sort of side thing that we have to pay attention to. And that's a developing uh, story that is so intriguing but also like i don't know i, I mean because th- listen th- we we haven't talked in a while but like the claudine gay situation happened and it's like there's a question mark about how journalists and news organizations were influenced by political operatives and people who are very specifically opposed to dei and other 
you know, I would just say black people in some instances. And so it's like, whoa, it's super important to have us talking about those situations and contextualizing those situations. I was so infuriated (laughs) over the coverage of Claudine Gay Mm -hmm. and uh, the notion that she had not been um, um, the subject of racist attacks, I, I think, was just bewildering to me. Like, how could you even stomach that or say that with a straight face on TV or write that column in the newspaper? And it was a lot of people who did not look like us um, who were doing those things. So I felt, you know, very strongly as we were going through the Claudine Gay situation. And now in this last week or so, thinking about the Fonnie Willis situation, like we need this. We need this. We need, we this. need these opportunities where we talk about the state of the industry and these problems. And then, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupted you a little bit, but I still want to hear more about um, your last, your last few months. Well, well, I mean, if you even take it back to my last 24 hours, uh, Raheem Morris was named the head football coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Hey, hey. Okay, check this out. Now, the first full-time, full-fledged black coach for the Atlanta Falcons, 1966 to now, just one. And he was the interim, so it's still the same guy. He was the first interim. He's the first full head coach. And you wouldn't believe some of the comments online. It's coded, of course. No one's saying, I don't want him. People are saying, oh, there were so many other candidates. Or, oh, I thought such and such had a second interview. Or, oh, I thought Bill Belichick would have been a better fit, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's coded. Just like Claudine, just like Fonnie Willis. And it's funny, but whatever, I say funny. And um, it's it's been interesting covering it from our angle, which is 100% black focused here as the only black paper in the town. And I was looking around and somebody happened to pop up the stat on on that particular coaching decision, which was Raheem Morris being hired mm-hmm. there in Atlanta. And it was about black coaches getting a second chance. And it, for folks that don't know, we typically don't get a second chance. Mm-hmm. You know, you you flame out, you have some kind of issue, whatever it may be in your first job. And apparently that's a black mark for you. You, you can't come back from that. And to me, that's always been um, representative of how the NFL has been unfair to uh, coaches, GMs, and, and, and those of us who have been in those positions, the people who look like us. And so Raheem Morris getting this opportunity, he's, a, he's just the 11th black coach to get a second gig. Just the 11th. What a weird number, man. In a league that I, we treads coaches every single year. Every single year. There's so many coaches. I mean, the NFL coaching ranks is literally a fraternity when you think about it. These guys just move around from shop to shop. There's only 32 of these main jobs. But let me tell you something. Their staffs are pretty big and they are filled with former NFL head coaches. Right. And so to beat out Bill Belichick for this role, I imagine I'm I'm just going to get into the football of it just for a second here. But I imagine Bill Belichick wanted full control. And that no wasn't going to happen in Atlanta. No why, else would, why else would someone that accomplished come to yeah. Atlanta to coach the football team? Yeah. I want to run the football program, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I listen, to beat him out, I mean, is one, suggesting that there was a different desire need there, but also to the recognition that Raheem Morris has something to offer 
I don't think he got a fair shot in his uh, his last tenure, if I recall correctly. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm I'm excited for him, and I am excited for Atlanta. I mean, because you know, we're we're talking about a different generation of football coaches at this point between the two, and uh, and that's totally. a good thing. It's it's a it's a good thing. He should have been hired the first time in 2020. I understand not doing it. The team didn't play well in that 11 games. And yeah. when he was interim, and I guess you said, let's just you know, erase everything and start all over again. And then the hire was Arthur Smith. So that was kind of like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you left yeah. a, a really bad relationship, and then you hired someone who's never been in a relationship before and said, hey, let's, let's you and I get together and see how this works. And that was a dumb idea. So I'm glad he's back. It was the best hire. It made the most sense. And you can tell from the tweets and, and TikToks from whomever, from the professional athletes and the former Falcons and current Falcons, that they like it. They like it. Yeah. Player's Choice is uh, is actually pretty powerful right now. Uh, same shout out to Antonio Pierce in, in Las exactly. Vegas getting an opportunity. Uh, it was the Player's Choice. And they they said they wanted it, and that's a good thing. I mean, it, that was a no brainer nice for them. I'm I'm surprised they didn't fumble that because that was a no brainer for the uh, yeah. for the Raiders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and they could have. I mean, that's not that's a franchise that I know very well <laughs> that has uh, made many, many, and many a mistake uh, with respect to coaching. Um, not going to say any names, uh, well, other than Gruden, but yeah, <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I'm I'm very much uh, excited about you know seeing some of these coaches get on and get opportunities, especially the way Antonio Pierce ended the year. He did a I mean, come hell on, of man. a job. Uh, Changed the whole I energy think. there. Yeah, I mean, and that's. All you can ask of a coach at this point. I mean, the players play. It's, you know, what's, what, what does the coach bring to the table? So mm-hmm. that's a good thing. So that's a, another major story we're talking about right there that you're in the midst of. I mean, literally just yesterday, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tweets are going left and right. I'm like, no, no rest for the weary, huh? <laughs> no, sir. Press conference coming up soon. Probably not going to be today because he's flying from the West Coast. Mm-hmm. It probably makes more sense for it to be Monday. Obviously, I can't. I can only tell you from my, from my experience, usually do these things on Mondays, yeah. Monday mornings, you know, yeah. so yeah, for that. Well, goodness gracious. Um, I mean, all of that sounds like a lot. And again, uh, reiterates the point. I mean, this is why we need to be having this conversation. Yes, sir. Because clearly, clearly you know, there's not enough discussion about like second chances, for instance, which I appreciated. The I, I would love to attribute who who shared that statistic yesterday. I was awesome, um, but it, it it's a it's a big deal, and um, it meant something for me thinking about you know all of the the lack of head coaches in this predominantly black league. So let me let me go through real quick what what I what I've been up to. Right, yeah. So I think the last we left, we we had a good conversation. Uh, with a number of journalists and we were like, Oh, let's set up the next thing and see what's what. (laughs) And then I get put on and I get connected with the Baltimore banner. Yeah. See my hand for that one real quick. And yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been here now since that time. I I think it was October ish, whatever the time period was. Um, here we are in late January, January 26th, we're recording this. And I'm hoping actually to get this up later today as, as, as soon as possible, because there's all kinds of stuff in the news that I'm just I know, like, man. Let's just, let's just get it up. Um, but so I've been at the banner and I've been, you know, I'll tell you this, this is how I feel. This is the most interesting place, interesting city right now in the journalism industry. Like everything is going on and it's happening right here. We're talking about the, 
the state of the media in terms of um, business models, in terms of startups, in terms of nonprofit, in terms of competition within a city, intra-city competition and and news organizations. Which is healthy. Um, Yeah, I think it's a healthy thing. I mean, I've worked in a two newspaper town. You work in a multi uh, uh, you know, news organization town as well. I mean, you, you know it when, when I'm talking about when I say like yes. there's a healthy bit of competition there. And so, uh, uh, people who don't know the backstory of the Baltimore Banner, it's an online news publication, but it's also a nonprofit and it's started by a hotel magnate by the name of Stuart Bainham, Stuart Bainham Jr. And he's the guy behind Choice Hotels, if anybody's familiar with that brand. And essentially he wanted to buy the Baltimore Sun, which is a storied newspaper, a very well-respected newspaper for its um, accountability journalism and its investigation. Um, it is a, a newspaper that has been around for more than 100 years. Oh, easily. Um, and so it has this great history of journalism. It also has a history um, that it had to apologize for a couple of years back for its its racism, for being in a predominantly black city, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's it's one of these places where people have gone and done incredible work. And I think that, you know, uh, they still do great work even today, uh, but they have not been the same or at least not have been um, as robust, if you will, in the last few years. And that is because they have been owned by uh, Alden Global Capital uh, and prior to that Tribune Company, which has trimmed and trimmed and, and it's it's always been you know a matter of cuts with these companies they they yeah. you know have been uh companies that uh reduced their headcount in order to maximize profits or maximize revenue however they're trying to do it um but it felt like for some reason they thought that these places weren't making money they were making money they just wanted to make more money more money and so um Stuart Bainham wanted to come in and buy uh, the Baltimore Sun. And this was 2019, 2020. And, uh, he ended up losing the bid. Uh, it, you know, he had a deal on the table for something like $60 million plus like $12 million a year to use, you know, Alden's, uh, uh, systems to, to maintain the paper. Deal falls apart. And Stuart Bainham says, well, F it. I'm going to make my own news organization. <laughs> and that's, that's how the Baltimore banner. And th- that's essentially at the start of when I started paying attention to it, when I started to come aware of it. And obviously it was covered pretty extensively in the industry publications that we all sort of pay attention to, you know, the Neiman Lab pointer and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so they've been ramping up ever since. I mean, they started with essentially a crew of, you know, a few journalists, 30 journalists or something like that. Um, he put in, I think, a $50 million commitment for the first, you know, four or five years. And um, they've been spending heavily, super well invested. Um, it's one of those things where it's actually the amount of investment and resources that the banner has is, you know, opened it up to criticism from others. Right. Rightfully so, if you will. I mean, not everybody's got opportunities. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not mad at that. Um, but you start with 30 journalists and then they start making strides. They start doing some great work and the newsroom grows and it grows. And now it's at um, the newsroom is at over, I believe, 70 people. The organization is at almost I think it's tipped over 100 people. I mean, oh, it's more a than the sun, probably at this point. It, 
it, it you know, I, I don't know the sun's head count, but I, I do believe we're bigger or as big as the sun. And so the just the sheer size of the newsroom, I mean, we're able to produce a lot of great journalism. And we're, you know, we have people that are very specific to uh, beats that aren't just in the city, but around the region. So we're covering the state of Maryland. We're covering central Maryland in particular, the counties and all of those things. So it's a robust operation, lots of accountability journalism, lots, lots of great feature, um, lots of columnists, or, 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 or I say we have a couple good, really good columnists, as well as a lot of uh, opinions that are sort of coming in and being produced and all those things. Anyways, we have a, I would say, a robust membership subscriber base now. All of these things makes us an interesting place to just watch because you see the growth, you saw the investment, and you're like, okay, what's going to come of this? The story isn't fully written yet. We don't know where it's going to end in terms of this growth that we're currently experiencing. And we got a little bit of a boost last week. And why did we get that boost? Well, the Baltimore Sun gets sold to David Smith, the executive chairman of Sinclair Broadcasting Group, which is a television uh, group that has almost or, or somewhere about 200 TV stations across the country. Uh, they also have investments in regional sports networks. Um, you know, that's a that's actually in the news recently. I think they just had an issue where they had to do a settlement of some amount of money um, for whatever set situation that they had set up. I couldn't I couldn't speak to the details all the way on that. But he's he's in a lot of spaces, mostly in TV. But he decides as the executive chairman, David Smith, he decides in his personal capacity that he's going to buy the Baltimore Sun with Armstrong Williams, a black man, conservative commentator, but also an owner of several television stations. I think at one point he was called the uh, black man with the uh, uh, most television stations owned by a black man in America. And I think it was something like seven or eight that he had. I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but he's, he's an entrepreneur and he's into, he's got his own show that is syndicated on Sinclair stations across the country. So you can hear him or watch him, if you will. And he used to write a syndicated column, got caught up because he had accepted some money from the George W. Bush administration. He since apologized for that, you know, lost opportunities for that. But he's constantly in the mix. He's somebody that, you know, as a black person, we're, we're watching because he's making moves and he's attempted at different points in times to purchase different outlets, whether it was I think he went he went after the root or the Grio at one point or he was trying to go after the black news channel when that was a thing. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I do. I had a couple of friends that took jo- left their jobs for that job in Tallahassee and have since returned to Atlanta. Yeah. So his name has been thrown around in these things that none of those things materialized, but it's certainly one of those things like you, you have to watch Armstrong Williams and sort of what he's up to because he's an entrepreneur in the media space. And, you know, uh, so he's a partner, a shareholder in this uh, endeavor to buy the Baltimore Sun, which is a big deal. It's a, I mean, it's again, story newspaper. And Legacy here they brand. are. Now, there are some people in the, in the Baltimore community that are like, you know, is there, are they going to turn this into a right wing operation? Is this going to be a political play? All of these things, given uh, Armstrong Williams, conservative um, uh, bona fides, given 
the Sinclair broadcast group sort of conservative tilt in, in their markets and all of those things. And I think they've said very clearly that, that that's not what they want, that they want to create an organization that's trustworthy, but they do want to expand the ideas that are uh, represented, particularly within the editorial pages. So, you know, yet to be seen. But again, another reason why Baltimore is the most interesting place in America right now in terms of the journalism industry. That happened last week. Also happening last week, and I'm sure, Donnell, you've been hearing about it and you've been talking about it, cuts across the board at so many different news organizations. LA Times. Um, LA Times, Time Inc., Sports Illustrated. I mean, right just here. gut it. Um, you know, I mean, listen, I, I don't want to do a full list because I feel like the list is expanding. But you, you get the sense that there's some reckoning that's occurring after people looked at their financial numbers from the fourth quarter and saying, um, this can't keep going on, whatever it is. Um, so certainly an industry that feels in decline. And here we are last week experiencing a bump at the Baltimore banner because of these factors, these different issues. People saying, I feel like I need to support news. I feel like I need to support an outlet I can trust. We were positioned, I, I think uniquely positioned to take advantage of that, given what we were offering um, our current state of, you know, sort of strength in, in terms of newsroom size and all of those things. And just some of the, the work that we had done recently, I think just uh, represented us really well within the community. And so people were like, let, let, let me support them. Let me see what they've got going on. So that's that's my that's my world right now. That's what I'm watching up close. That's what I'm sort of contributing to as a as a digital producer editor um, within the newsroom. I love it. I think it's the most interesting place to be in the world right now. And I'm I'm super, you know, enthused to contribute to that. Mind you, that ain't the only thing going on. <laughs> If you can't hear it, there are little small shrieks and screams. I, I had a daughter. This is all what, this is all what kept me away from the podcast. I'm trying to explain to the people where my head space has been. <laughs> I had a daughter, Aaliyah. She's now, you know, the, I mean, we're, we're at five months, whatever. Um, and you know, she's, she takes time. She, oh, yes. she needs her time. I've got still podcast clients that still got them to deal with. Those are, those are, you know, front and center, top of mind and, and, you know, new projects have come up. The new year hit and people were like, I need to get my podcast going. What's they do? <laughs> it's podcast like, is it's new like TV, bro. It's, it's like the gym membership. You know what I'm saying? Let me get back in the gym. Let me get yeah, back on my, my podcast. Yeah, I'm not so too different shit. in that respect. Okay. I'm no hate, no shade on anybody back no, in the gym or back on their podcast. Uh, we, we doing the same right now. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's been a big priority for me, make sure that my clients are taken care of. And so all of that has sort of like been swirling, if you will. Um, I've been trying to, um, do a better job of running every week, you know, because, because if you, if you're, if you're running or if you're sitting at a desk and looking at a screen all day long, it can get real bad for you health wise. So I've been trying to do a better job of that. So that's actually taking a good amount of energy just to be like, man, how can I make time for this? Anyways, all of which is to say that there's been a, it's been a little bit of time since we've done this podcast. Yes. And there's been a lot going on. <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. So that way we could tell some of our stories. Um, uh, some stories that did take up a lot more of my headspace than others, the, the Claudine Gay situation. For at least a couple of weeks, I was, I was all over that, reading everything. Um, not happy, not happy with the broad coverage. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, uh, made me mad, this is, there's, there's several things that made me mad, but one of the things that made me mad as somebody who's in this industry, it's like, I wanted to see immediate columns and commentary from us. And I didn't see enough. And I felt like the ones that did come, and they're usually like a, a day or a couple of days late, particularly after significant events or resignation, um, uh, you know, the, the presser that occurred, or excuse me, the, the hearing that occurred on Capitol Hill in which he and uh, two other um, university presidents testified, like all of these things, when these significant events occurred, like we were, we, I'm talking about us, black journalists, were slow to respond to some of these major events. I agree. And with respect to our perspectives and sort of how this might be construed to the public. But there was a coordinated effort by others to respond. To hammer her in each of those incidents for different reasons. And again, I'm not going to try and get into the validity of the, the arguments against her, the plagiarism. The, I'm not going to do that. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that it felt like it was a campaign being waged against her and we were slow to respond to that campaign. And now that we're sort of hip to it, it's like, are we equipped to respond to those kinds of things in the future? And I'd love to get your perspective on, on what you saw of the coverage of that particular incident. Yeah. That story should have dominated black media. And in certain cases it was relevant uh, in some, and I saw some coverage. I didn't see it dominate black media. We should have came to her defense. We didn't come to her defense. Some of us reported it. And I, and me not being in the Boston area wasn't my beat or whatever. And we don't have a columnist here, a national columnist. So we ran an editorial, which was pro her. And it was in her defense. But again, like you said, it was two, three days after the fact. And it ran in print. So who did it reach? Only our subscribers. I wish we would have done a better job. I wish a lot of publications would have just said the heck with it. I don't care if I'm in Boston or not. This woman held a prestigious uh, position at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, not the country, in the world. And that has a major impact on how this country is run. And we should um, come to her defense because I don't think it was right what they did to her. And we didn't do that. So I, I, I think we missed the shot that we should have took. A lot of yeah. a lot of black publications, white publications, any publication, podcast. It should have been all over the podcast. That should be a great podcast conversation. I didn't see a yeah. podcast about that. I only saw a few, and and you know, I mean, the few that I, I I'm, right. I'm, I'm I'm into. I guess I you know I was paying attention to, but um, just to your point, like I think she's viewed or she was viewed as an avatar for higher education, for DEI, for all of these right. things, and that was enough of a reason to attack her. She, uh, viewed as an avatar for elite education, I should say, elite yes. Ivy League education and sort of the things that um, certain political players and, and, and people 
particularly on the right, find offensive about higher education. And she becomes this, this person that, okay, just based on her title, based on her role, based on who she is, I'm, you know, uh, you know, she's going to come under attack. And what I worry about, and this is particularly for those outside of the black press, what I worry about is that, you know, we wait for the right moment to come to the defense of these kinds of situations that we have to say, mm, I, I need a, I need a, an in, if you will, to say that she deserves protecting or deserves uh, a, a defender, if you will, in the media. And that's the part where it's just like, I'm not sure how equipped we are to respond to what are clear campaigns against being waged against people because Again, like I said, I'm not going to get into the details of plagiarism or this or that, whatever. But when you start looking into some of it, you're like, well, it doesn't really hold up here or there or what. It's like, well, who's who of us is paying attention to do that kind of work? And, you know, I, you know, rightfully criticized myself in saying that, you know, maybe I should have just jumped up and just done something in terms of writing something, writing a piece or whatever. But I'm like. I ain't got time. And I'm like, should I have made time? Should I have made time? So that's, that's my criticism of myself in all of this too. Okay. Like, uh, thinking about it because it is, as you said, um, an aspirational role for all of us. Those are in higher education in particular who want to uh, climb the ranks of administration. And, and now given the landscape, the political landscape in particular and I don't know, leadership in general at, in academia. I mean, these roles do not seem very, very kind or enviable. I don't, I don't know who would want one of these jobs given what's just occurred. And, and I so can't be I mad think, for somebody for, for, for wanting to be in that position one day, you know, and saying, well, I'd love to run Harvard University. I'm not mad at you for one doing that, but you can't feel like you're going to be welcome in route. Well, not just welcome. Because they celebrated her when she started. They did. But are you going to support her? And I think that's what the, the realization is. It's like, you're not going to be supported. You're going to have political actors attack every aspect of your From character and integrity in order to take you down. If they, if they feel like you aren't, you know, 1000% on their side on whatever subject it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no sort of room or space for nuance, not with respect to what originally got her in the hot seat. And in, in this, in the, in the case of the Israel Hamas war and all of that, there's no room or respect for, um, uh, 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 trying to provide space for students who might disagree with, um, uh, Israel's prosecution of the war. Uh, so all of that is like, okay, you didn't, you, you weren't with us. In condemning these students, I'm gonna go after everything. Right. You know, it. and I, that to me is like, let's, let's stop and think about the total picture here and what we're representing. And Harvard's board corporation, I mean, they're just, you know, they allowed this to happen. And, uh, the influence of money, donors and people who, um, created this particular situation, not just that. Harvard, but also at the University of Pennsylvania, um, is really deplorable. And I think there's going to be a long-term backlash to that in particular, which is to say that some of these 
institutions are probably going to inoculate themselves a little bit from that kind of oversized um, um, and over-influenced money that they've been getting. I mean, you gave us $10 million or whatever it is. Like, do I owe you something? I don't know. I mean, used to be you get a professorship named in your honor and your family foundation's honor or a building named after you. And it's like, I don't know how much, how many more buildings we can rename. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Like, I think at a certain point, these institutions are going to say, you know, we don't need that. You know, we need you to fund this program. If you don't want to fund it, that's all good. You don't get any influence other than know that your works did, you know, some long-term help. Uh, so I think, I think there is going to be a response in that way, but I don't know if there's going to be, um, uh, uh, any kind of actual revision, rethinking in terms of how we operate as uh, media members with respect to these kinds of situations without a conversation like this occurring. Right. Uh, again, how do we handle uh, influence campaign? And, I, I, and I'm sorry, go ahead. I'd like to think that this kind of stuff happened at Morehouse and Spelman. I would be head first, out front, covering it and covering it in the way I think we were just talking about. So I, we should approach it that same way. We should approach it that same way. If it's in our backyard, we'd be all over it. I like to think we would be. So yeah. for as the only black newspaper in Atlanta, I know we would be all over this story. And I would hope, well, I'm the editor-in-chief, so I know we would be defending said president if it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But if it was right and hurt, like in quoting Gay's case, I'd, I'd know we'd be all over that. So I'd like to think that... um everyone else should do the same thing in their backyard. Yeah. Uh, and, and so let's differentiate then, right? Beyond black press. Now, now you got to worry about mainstream press. It's like, what's, where's the reckoning there? Cause I, I mean, you see some postmortems and then I'm calling out the New York times specifically. Yes. You know, and they're like, well, we knew who, you know, Christopher Rufo, one of the political operatives who obviously did not, does not have a uh, higher education or Harvard in mind in terms of like, he just wanted to take down somebody. I mean, I think he said literally called it scalped after she resigned or, or was removed. He did. Uh, which is an awful, awful thing to say about anybody. Um, but you know, like these kinds of people, like they look at it afterward and they say, Oh, you know, like, well, I guess he's a political actor, but that doesn't take away from, you know, these plagiarism allegations. It's like, well, you haven't even really looked into that either. No, you haven't, so, you haven't dug deep into that. So, you have. So, so it's like you, you see that there's a political operative that they're trying to influence you in, in particular. Uh, you allow your columnist to go all willy nilly in every different direction on this subject. Um, which is, you know, whatever, I guess, you know, columnists write to, to, to opine on what they want. It's part of the job. Um, and then, you know, news coverage that is just overwhelming, right? Story after story, day after day. Not, not, not any incremental updates, just talking about the, the nature of elite education and, and whatever else is going on. And why is Claudine Gay under the hot seat every single day? That kind of pressure comes with something. Yes. And so I like, where's that reckoning, right? Um, you know, I, I think people rightfully have asked for a public editor there again. So I, I'm, I'm, we're going off on it right now. I'm going off. 
But I'm just telling you, I'm still hot about it. I'm, I'm still mad about what occurred and how we operated in this space. I, I assume, I assumed there were other good stories that were happening at that moment. That was the one on my, on my, on my mind, on my spirit, on all of that. <laughs> Well, it's similar to what's happening to the Fulton County DA. She's the only fem- black female Fulton County DA in the history of Fulton County, the largest county in Georgia. Okay. And the coverage of her lately, not in the Atlanta voice, thank God, we've done a good job of to- covering the woman and not the alleged act. A lot of the coverage from our, we only have one daily newspaper, the AJC, which is a very fine publication. But that being said, their coverage seems to stem and focus on our alleged relationship between two consenting adults. Even if one is still married, which is in poor taste, sure, but whatever, and not about the woman and the job she's doing. And um, we're not doing that. So I've, this Claudine Gay story hits home because it feels like Fonnie Willis is our Claudine Gay, where you're in a high position of power as a black woman, and there are political figures. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is one, just to, just to throw one out there, who say, hey, I don't know if she should be in that position. Look at this thing. And it's like, does that thing have to do with this job? Does that alleged plagiarism have to do with the fact that she's a good president for the university? I don't think that does, but it worked in Boston, but it's not going to work here in Atlanta. And part of it is because we're covering it and trying to cover it in full instead of just jumping on the train of whichever stories can get the most clicks about two, a man and a woman going on vacation. That's a hotter story than trying to lock up 19 people. One of them, which is a former president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, so it came to my attention um, through the Washington Post. I was reading the Washington Post, and I got to tell you, I was kind of upset with the story that they wrote. And it was this is about a week ago, I guess they they said, "Well, we got new information that suggests they went on this trip together," and it's like, okay. uh, why should I care? That, I mean, the, I this, is, care. This, this, is an imp- this is an important piece that I think is, you know, in every bit of journalism that we do, we have to demonstrate why it's important to the public in a way that's meaningful. Not to say that it's just salacious, but, but also like, why is it important to the case and whether or not it's something that should be a hindrance for her or this special prosecutor to continue on in their roles there? And also, I mean, just being frank, does it actually affect the case, right? Because that's another layer to this, right? Even if you want to call this an improper relationship, which is what the allegation is, does it affect the case? And it doesn't. We already went over that with uh, the former um, diversity and equity czar of the White House, Norm Eisen. We talked about it privately with a bunch of media on Saturday. Off the record, on the record, we could use him as a source, but he's not like coming out. And he's like, this has nothing to do with the phone call that Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia, some odd years ago, about not even some odd years ago, just three years ago, about needing 11,473 votes. That, has, that relationship has nothing to do with that call. That call is what we're bringing to court. And the people who else, you know, combined in, to try to change an election, not a relationship between two, two adults, a relationship that you don't even know about, even if we were on the same plane. To the same yeah. to the same island. So what? You know. I, uh, so this is where my uh, lack of knowledge and insight into the law profession and um, the conduct of lawyers um, uh, is, is, is is sort of on display here. 
I'm like, I, I didn't know that you couldn't have a relationship with other prosecutors or people that you work with or, or like, I didn't know that that was like, apparently that's what they're alleging though. But so I'm, I'm very much confused, like how this might bar them from continuing to work on the case because I, that's, I think the end goal here, but, but also like they, these, there's one of the co-defendants in all of this in the, in the Rico case, one of the other 18, 19 people that you, you mentioned. Um, he's trying to get it thrown out because of this relationship. And I, I just think to myself, well, like, how, how do you, how do you make that leap? I don't, I, I, cause, cause the, as you pointed out, the phone call is still there. All the other evidence, the pressure campaign on the poll workers, the, all, all of that, all that stuff is still there. So like, there's still a case to be tried and discussed in the court. Of law, like I don't understand how you just throw out the whole case. You know, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I it's guess that's what I'm trying screen. to say. Because I throw a smoke screen over there, or have you ever been on the highway and there's an accident outside and everyone slows down? Wow, traffic's yeah. really bad, but it's not. We're all looking at that thing, and then eventually we pass it. And then traffic is free. The whole highway is almost empty. It was just the 22 cars staring at that accident. He tried to cause an accident and have everyone stop and stare at it, so that way we can get off the fact that. Him and 18 other people did stuff that we're not supposed to do to try to influence an election. That's what this is. There's no, there's no legal binding. There's nothing about this that is illegal. It's just, it's not even immoral. It's just messy. In the hood, we call it messy. Why, why, yeah. why are you messing with him now? Yeah. And, and so, so a couple of hypotheses I have, right? W- one of which is that uh, it's a delay tactic. Question. Help, uh, to help uh, uh, Trump as he uh, continues his campaign. He, you know, right. again, we're, we're recording this in, in late January. He just won the New Hampshire primary, won the Iowa caucuses. Right. Um, you know, to getting Carolina. to Super Tuesday in right. South Carolina and getting to Super Tuesday is super important for him in order to lock up the Republican nomination. Right now, he still has one challenger and to not have... Um, um, or not be in a position to worry about challengers while dealing with this case, this particular case, which is, mm-hmm. uh, and, and dangerous his, his, uh, his, his freedom. <laughs> um, I think is important. So I think that that's a big one right there. But I also think the other, you know, sort of hypothesis here is, is the messier that they make it, the easier case that they have to make to, the uh, Republicans across the country that, you know, that this is a political hit job, that this is a witch hunt, that this is that. And look, you see these corrupt uh, prosecutors coming after us. I think that they have two sort of goals there, which is delay, but also make it messy. So that way we can continue to say that this is, you know, not on the level, uh, so to speak. Um, So it's a, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like, uh, similar to the Claudine Gay, it's like, let's speak about this forcefully and clearfully, clearly about what's occurring here. Uh, because we know, I mean, as your reporting shows and, and others have, have demonstrated as well, uh, there's actually no legal impact to the case itself. So why, why are we talking about the mess like this? Have we learned no lessons about these influences? I'm to distract you. This is distracting, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to distract you for a minute. <laughs> I we just got to so distract I, you until November. Then it's cool. After that, we're, we're cool. Not even November, August. And yeah. we're good. I don't want you yeah. to worry about what's going on over there. Just look over here. Look over here and look at me. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I'm very much in the, the mold of um, how can we uh, think about this in terms of media members and how can we cover this in a way? And I felt like 
um, some of our mainstream friends um, did not do such a good job with respect to contextualizing the stakes here and contextualizing the sort of political campaign that's happening in order to potentially help them with these other aims, delaying uh, these cases, for example, or um, uh, maligning the prosecutor so that way they can continue this messaging of it's not on the level. Um, and, and again, it's us getting caught up in that, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's real people whose lives and careers are being harmed and damaged because of these campaigns that are being waged. They have children. So I, they have children. Yeah. They have, they, her, her mother's still with us, I believe. Uh, his, he has children, ex-wife, obviously, but they, he has children. Like, so you don't want to hear that your dad is in some scandal when it really isn't that scandal at all. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. I mean, this, what do we talk about? We've, we've talked about Claudia and Gay. We've talked about Fanny Willis. <laughs> Willis. We've talked about uh, the, uh, the, the Baltimore Raheem Suns. Morris. Raheem Morris. I mean, black people are under attack. <laughs> we are, <laughs> you know, I mean, Raheem Morris is a bright spot. Let me sure. say that. Sure. <laughs> but like this, this is just in the last week again. So we've been out of it. We've been out of commission because we've been busy. We've been handling our thing. Uh, you're a super busy guy leading uh, a news organization and running around doing stories, not just for your paper, but for others as well. And it's to me, it's like, it's like I know, I know you're busy, Donnell. Gotta get you on the phone. I gotta get you. No question. And I'm busy. I'm like, I, I know I got client, I got client work. I gotta get to after this. I gotta do some work for the banner. After that, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be. Uh, in Baltimore, if not today, if uh, later uh, on, uh, nice. so it's like, you know, it's gonna, it's it's a thing where we recognize the amount of work that we have, the things that are going on, and I, I think we are going to make more space and time to try and do these conversations. We have to, it's, and we will. It, it's not, you know, it's not going to be consistent. I'm, I'm just saying, saying now, I'm being honest with the being people. out front. I'm, but I, I got to get some stuff off my chest. I'm watching these uh, sort of different events sort of uh, take place. And I'm like, yo, we got to we got to respond. We got to talk like about one. it. Um, Shout out to all of the journalists in uh, Los Angeles, uh, particularly our, our black and brown journalists, our AAPI journalists who. Uh, you know, are going through it. They're going through job loss and layoffs. A lot of journalists lost their jobs. 115 was the original count. They still don't know. It hasn't been finalized know. again. <laughs> I mean, this is this is what we're dealing with here. Um, shout out to all those that worked at SI. Um, it, they're in the middle of it, so it's not a, it's the, it's not the end, but it certainly it's not a good place. No. Um. So you know, I, I I'm thinking about all of these things. Um. As, as the state of media state of play. And I'm like, we got to continue to talk about this and hopefully we can bring some of these people on to talk about their jobs, their journeys. I totally want to do that. And I'm, there's a lot of them that probably want to want to get some stuff off their chest too. So that'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely. I've got some guests in mind. Okay, I'm sure you've got some too. You know, I do that. We need to uh, come back to and say, Hey, look, we're restarting. Let's call it season two. There you go. It's called season, season two. New Year, season two. Be back. And we're, we're going to tell some stories to some folks, and, and hopefully it's going to be in some of these places that we've been discussing where they can really weigh in on some of these significant stories that are impactful, um, not just for them personally, but also for our industry. And I think that's the, the goal, uh, the hope for this podcast is to really 
uh, learn about the person, but also learn about the industry. I mean, I just think it's a space space for us to talk. And regardless if it's safe or not, it's a space for us to talk and black journalists to talk to other black journalists. We can, I mean, we can talk about all journalists, but we need to be the ones doing the talking. So yeah, I'm happy season two is here. Yeah. Same here. Same here. (laughs) 